Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. Change does not require a moment where you decide, I'm going to change. Change requires effort over time, repeated effort. It requires finding a way to do this that's sustainable. And so those moments where we say, I'm fed up, most of them we can't take a single action and make a change. It turns out you're going to persist longer if you find a way to pursue your goals that's actually instantly gratifying in the moment. It was like magic. And then it was really fun. The world reacted in this really, you know, I sort of thought I was scratching an intellectual itch and then it got all this media attention. And that was also neat because I was like, other people find this cool. I can, I can find out things that other people want to know and want to talk about. This is amazing. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I am super excited to have you here. And I have a ton of questions. So I think if it's okay with you, I'm going to jump right in to the tennis area of your life. Do you remember the tennis area of your life? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> Not All forgettable. Right. Not forgettable. So you were are a tennis player, but back in the day, you were an exceptional tennis player. You were nationally ranked. <laughs> Okay, she's giving me the men's and men's. I'm I'm doing this from Italy, so I'm used to I'm used to hand signals. This is what we have I was, here. I was a a good tennis player. Exceptional is probably an overstatement. All right, so we'll we'll go very with serious, that. very serious. Let's go very serious. Perfect, perfect. But your or ends your coach said something to you when you were a teenager that perhaps is a bit counterintuitive, and that was. Hey, look, why don't you spend 75% of your time honing your greatest strength and develop it into an extraordinary asset and devote 25% of the time on the other parts of the game? In what ways did that influence how you think about work now or think about the work that you do now? I think it might have been the most important piece of advice I've ever gotten because at that stage, tennis was my life, right? And I was really focused on patching my weaknesses. That was how I was thinking about what practice was for. Was all these I have these gaping holes, these limitations. I need to focus so hard on patching those. That is why I go out and practice every day. And this completely reset the way I was thinking about the sport to 
actually, the way you become great at something is that you hone your strengths. And I realized quickly that that actually applied to everything in life. As soon as you get choice, right? When you're sort of a high school student, like you have to take some math and some English and some history, right? But as soon as you go out into the world and start uh, on a path where you have options and opportunities and you're choosing between them, it becomes so important to recognize that you want to lean into your strengths as opposed to obsessing about your weaknesses. I mean... I do think it's important to say you can't just ignore your weaknesses. You need to be aware of them. You don't want to leave them, you know, and make them get fester and get to be terrible. And there are some that you can't ignore. But it's it's changed the way I advise my students. Um, it's changed the way I choose my projects, my efforts. I I like science communication and I'm decent at it. So I lean into that. And I'm you know, maybe not the world's most extraordinary econometrician. Um, And so I find other extraordinary econometricians to partner with me when I do big statistical projects, Um, right? So like finding other people who can plug holes and then leaning into what you're great at, for me, has been um, so impactful in terms of my enjoyment of my work. And I think the quality of what I'm doing. And, and I try to coach other people in the same way to, to think more about what are you great at and how can you hone that strength, lean into it as much as possible so you can truly make a huge impact. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't be an econometrician because I don't know what it is. It must be something <laughs> that works. It's a fancy word for statistician in the economics profession. It, it, it must be. It, it must be uh, have something to do with the fact that you got into uh, Princeton, maybe Harvard too. Um, that and and I didn't. So we're just going to leave that one on the table. Who the hell needs to know? I mean, what it I is? chose. I chose an esoteric term to highlight. You know, we can't all be great at everything. It's something I'm not great at, right? And so anyway, and and you don't have to be great at everything. It's great to figure out what you're not terrific at. Okay, so here's the question then: Why do you think that it is? Oh shit. Oh my God. I just did that. Can you hear you me better now? Again? I can. Oh my <laughs> I God. I was fine before, but now you're much clearer. I, no, no, no. We're going to leave it in. I have never <laughs> in 350 episodes, I have never not had a mic under my mouth. For some reason or another, I did not have the mic. But that's Hollywood. So we're going to keep it going. Don't even worry about it. It's on theme with humans make mistakes. (laughs) One of them is that we're forgetful. And once we know that about ourselves, we can grow and get better. Wow. (laughs) I've never done that before. I I wanted to make sure that everybody understood that we are all fallible. Here's the question one more time with a microphone. Why do you think that we tend to want to lean into areas of weakness instead of maximizing and doubling down on what we're good at? Oh, I love that question. I, You know, there's a pretty well-studied phenomenon in psychology um, called the spotlight effect, which okay. is about... The way I think about it is, you know, when you have a pimple and you're sure everyone's staring at your pimple, but no one notices, Mm -hmm. that's the spotlight effect. Like there's something wrong with you. You become really focused on it because you're, you're so upset about it. 
and you assume the whole world is seeing that glaring error um, because it bothers you so much. I think the spotlight effect might be part of why we worry so much about our weaknesses. We're aware of them. We see that we don't measure up on some dimension. And then we're sure they, they must be obvious to everyone else. They must all be staring at us and wondering, you know, how did she get her addition wrong in that on that example she just did in class, this is this professor must be a moron. You know, whatever it is. When in reality, like life is busy. There's a lot of other inputs people are taking. They're not focused on your limits particularly, but but that is a human tendency is to experience that spotlight effect. So my guess, you know, I really I haven't studied this. I'm just riffing here with you. Yeah. My guess is that might be part of why uh we worry so much about trying to patch weaknesses is because we think others notice them more than they really do. Uh, We're insecure about that. And then um, we think it's a bigger problem than it is. We tend to blow it out of proportion. Um, I, I wonder if it's also that we take for granted that we're really good at something and we innately just think that things need to be harder and we want them to like we we have to work for it. In other words, it's it's yeah, it's too easy. Like I'm too I'm I'm too good at this. It's too easy for me. So I wonder. But but okay, like the Protestant I, work ethic thing. Like we, you, we feel you got like it. anything that doesn't come with struggle isn't worth right. achieving. Yeah. Right. Right. That's a well said. Well said. Okay. So I want to fast forward a little bit, um, and I want to I want to move into uh, the Princeton years for you. You decided that you wanted to drop out of tennis. You had had enough of tennis. You needed to focus on your academics. Um, but with anything we have an identity that's tied to what it is that we do. And I once heard Tony Robbins say, um, I'm paraphrasing, but something like um, one of the strongest needs in the human condition is our desire to remain consistent with our identity. In other words, whatever we tell ourselves that we are, we want to align with that at all costs. And so you um, you were the tennis girl, right? You were the girl that played tennis. You played it well, but then you said, I'm out. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. How did that affect mm-hmm. your identity around that? And how do you th- how do you think about that in the kind of work that you do now in terms of identity at a, on a, with a broader brush? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, it was a really hard decision to quit for that reason. I, I wasn't particularly enjoying the experience of being a college tennis player. It took tons of hours away from other things that I liked better. Um, and it was hurting my grades. It was reducing my opportunities to have a fun social life, uh, to get enough sleep, all those things that matter immensely. And I wasn't like a really important part of the team. I was riding the bench for the most part. <laughs> I, I occasionally yeah. contributed in small ways, but I was not a really important part of this organization. They were going to be just fine without me. But I think I probably played for... longer on the team than I needed to just because it was so hard to imagine letting go. And by the way, I still have dreams. It's been 20 years. I still have dreams about being, uh, you know, later on in my career at, at the university and going back to the coach and joining the team again. Like, you know, I would have them weekly for a while and I still have them maybe once every six months. I dream I'm a college student again, going back to the coach and saying, I want to come back. Will you take me? So, you know, it's really hard to break away from things like that. (laughs) Why why do you think? Is it because, because of everything that was wrapped up in that identity? Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, this is what 
I study change, right? And this is one kind of change is just making a clean break from something uh, is it's tough because so yeah, so much of who I was, I identified as part of this group, part of this team as an athlete and to just walk away from it was really difficult. I needed to figure out what what will my new identity be? I, I was doing it for a reason. I think that helped a lot. I sort of had identified like, I am getting really excited about this aspect of academics. I wanted to start doing some research, which has become my life's work. Uh, and I saw that I didn't have the time and capacity. So it was important to me to know how I was going to fill that gap and who I was going to be instead, as opposed to simply saying, well, this isn't that fun. And it's crowding out other things that are, I needed a new, a real reason, an identity re- relevant reason to make that switch. But it, it, that did, it was still difficult, even with that. Okay. So you mentioned that what you do now, and I was going to ask you, well, I'll ask you anyway. If you're at a cocktail party and somebody says, what do you do for a living? What do you say? I normally say you should ask my husband because he'll give you a much more <laughs> succinct answer. <laughs> Truly, <laughs> really. Well, okay. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna channel your husband through you now. Uh, if you, mean you, were you your, want me to actually answer that question, if, if you were your husband answering the question, how would your husband? How would your? How would your husband describe it? I study the way people make peculiar decisions, what it is that motivates them to make those decisions, and how to get them to do things like quit smoking and exercise more regularly, get vaccinated, save more for retirement. What are the tools that can promote those good decisions? He would have All done right. it better though. <laughs> he would have done it. He would have, you didn't channel him so good. Okay. So here's, <laughs> here's, the, here's the question. When somebody made this, I'm going to give you my thoughts and I want you to tell me what your thoughts about my thoughts are. I believe that when people make a change, they make a change because they hit thresholds. They say, not another minute, not another second. I put the bikini on. I saw the way it looks in the mirror. I'm done. It's over. And it starts now. And it's usually done when there is massive pain. Am I right? I think you're right that there has to be some precipitating event and a threshold is one way of thinking about that, right? Like I couldn't fit into my old jeans or I had an awful experience with my boss. I have a good friend who was just telling me the story of, uh, she's a, she was a working mom during the pandemic. She told me the story of the day she quit her job, decided yep. she was just going to be a mom. And she said what happened was her oldest kid came into the room while she was on her computer and the kids were supposed to be out doing Zoom school on their own and handed her a small brown object and and said, here's some poop. And she said, what? (laughs) And, you know, anyway, there's a conversation that went on. She learned it was one of the younger children's poop that there had been an encounter. And the older one had thought it was reasonable to bring it to mom. Uh, And she decided then and there, you know, this is too outrageous. I have to, I have to quit. I do think a lot of us have those precipitating moments. It's like where it washes over us. Um, One of the things I've actually studied when it comes to those kinds of moments is moments in time that cause us to feel like we're crossing a threshold, uh, which I think is different than an event like your child handing you poop and you realizing your parenting isn't where you want it to be. Um, But 
what my collaborators and I have studied is that at moments like the start of a new year, which we're all familiar with, the celebration of a birthday, um, even something smaller like the start of a new week or a new month or a new season, if it's called to our attention, we feel like we have a bit of a blank slate and a fresh start and we're turning the page on a chapter in our lives. So there are moments that have that sense of a new beginning and those are thresholds and people are more likely to begin pursuing new goals at those moments. And I think it's partly related to what you're saying. There's like a... um, an introspection that happens because you're crossing crossing over a threshold. Uh, there's also an identity shift. You can say like, oh, you know, the old me last year didn't do this, but the new me can. So you can have more optimism. You feel like, oh, I'm a distinct, I'm distinct person. This chapter change has helped with that. But also you just do more reflection, right? I'm I'm coming up on my 40th birthday. And that just leads you to think like, oh wow, you know. I'm I'm getting halfway there. What what have I accomplished? What are the things that I wish were different? So I I think that's another kind of threshold that evidence points to. So I think I'm agreeing with you, um, even though the evidence I have is limited to those kinds of I'll call them temporal thresholds. So the the birthdays that end in the zero, the the new year that starts at you know day one, those moments have an impact. We all know everybody does you know New Year's resolutions, and they're they you know. I almost can't even look at social media during those two weeks that lead up to it and the first week after because it's 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 such bullshit about what they're going to do because three weeks later, the Haagen-Dazs, they're still eating it, right? So why, why does that optimism... Look, I'm making generalizations, obviously. But why does that optimism get so... They're all hot and bothered. But then the lasting change is something altogether different. Like these New Year, we all know that New Year's resolutions, for the most part, they don't stick. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, the basic answer is change does not require a moment where you decide I'm going to change. Change requires effort over time, repeated effort. It requires finding a way to do this that's sustainable. And so those moments where we say, I'm fed up, most of them, we can't take a single action and make a change. Occasionally, we can, right? I, I went and quit the tennis team. My friend quit her job. Quitting is one of those things that we can do. Another thing we can do in sort of a, a single moment of inspiration is something like, you know, sign up for a 401k, a retirement savings program that'll just like carry us forward. So you can sign up for things and you can quit things. And sometimes that'll make a change in your life. But a lot of the stuff that we want to do, like the most popular New Year's resolution, as you've alluded to, is dieting. That's not a, oh, let me just sign up and I'm done, (laughs) right? You have to change what you eat day in and day out or uh, exercise. You have to change how often you're actually going to the gym day in and day out. It's not a single decision point. And so that's why all of the other things I study, besides fresh start moments, which is one of my favorite topics I've ever studied, why I think they matter. And actually, when I decided to write a book, a bunch of my friends were like, oh, you're gonna write a book about fresh starts, right? Because that's sort of, your thing and you've studied that extensively and it seems like people really relate to that. And and I was like, that would be a really crummy book because it wouldn't really help people that much. You know, there's a couple things you can do with that fresh start momentum, but mostly you need a lot of other tools uh, once you've had that revelation, right? So it's great to have the revelation and I'm all for fresh starts pushing people to begin, but but you need so many other tools and so many other strategies to overcome the barriers to change for the most part. It's not just a one and done. 
Okay. So if we're equipping somebody with the toolbox and we're saying, all right, look, it's new year, it's, it's new year's Eve. I'm with you. You get a fresh start that this you're starting off. Great. You, you're going you're down the leap. right road. You're <laughs> yeah. ready to leap. You're a psychologist. You, you have the best of intentions, but then, you know, two weeks goes by what tools should they have? And it doesn't have to be new year's. It could be change, any kind of change. What yeah. tools should, maybe you can give me one or two. What are one or two tools that somebody can have in their toolbox when they've decided I'm going to make a change? Yeah. What would you add to it? Okay. I'm going to give you tools, but I have to give you a caveat first, which is probably the most important thing I have found studying this is too often people just want tools and they don't diagnose what's specifically likely to hold them back given their goal. And it, okay. it depends the answer is like the best tool depends on what the barriers are likely to be for you. Now, there are some really common barriers that are almost like, you know, we can almost guarantee they'll get in your way, but they're not always there. And I do think that diagnosis phase, it's too often neglected, right? Like you're not taking your medications. Is it because you're forgetting or you hate the side effects? We do really different things to solve the problem depending, right? And so anyway, so the diagnosis is important. And yet, I want to answer your question. I'm going to give you one of my favorite tools, which I really think applies to almost all of the change troubles we have. And that is that most of the time when we start thinking about our New Year's resolution, our plan to change, that's going to require day in, day out effort. We're looking for a path, you know, maybe we're planning, we're looking for a path that's going to be really efficient. So let me give you the example of exercise. You want to get fit. You're like, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to find the most efficient exercise I can do to get in shape. Like, let's go, let's go for the maximally punishing Stairmaster. It turns out that is not as good of a strategy as instead looking for a fun way to get fit. So most people don't think at all about the experience they're going to have during their fitness routine. They're like, get me to the Stairmaster. Get me to my goal as fast as possible. A yeah. small subset of people think, I want to have a really good time while I'm trying to get fit. Let me try to take a Zumba class with my friend. You're going to burn less calories per minute, but you are going to enjoy it. And it turns out you're going to persist longer if you find a way to pursue your goals that's actually instantly gratifying in the moment. Most people think, you know, if I have the big goal, I just have to do it. I just focus, you know, like effort. I can do this. We already talked about the Protestant work ethic. And that is wrong. So research by I.L. at Fishbach, uh, the University of Chicago, and Caitlin Woolley at Cornell University has nicely demonstrated this misconception that people think effective is more important than fun, but that if you actually prompt people, get them to try the fun path, they stick to it longer, whether it's exercise, diet, study habits. That instant experience is so much more important than we realize. We, we overweight whether we're enjoying it now and tend to underweight the importance of our long-term goals. And that's that's the a big barrier to change in many contexts. So more focus on how are you going to make it actually fun, actually gratifying in the moment to pursue this goal so that you won't find it unpleasant in the first couple attempts and have quit a weekend. But you know, it's really interesting because I um I probably, I don't know, in the last 30 years, I would say there's not been a week that's gone by. Mm maybe, maybe one or two where I haven't worked out. And so people ask me, you know, like, like, what is it? And so it's always difficult for me to deconstruct. Like, why is it that that motivation isn't a thing for me? But as you're speaking, I'm realizing that there are certain things that I do that I put, uh, different things together. So for example, when, I'm stretching before I work out, um, there is, um, 
uh, a YouTube uh, series um, rotation that I go through where are different YouTubers that are giving me different information that I listen to um, that I enjoy. When um, I'm doing um, wind sprints on the treadmill, um, I'm listening to certain playlists that uh, remind me of like high school, like, you know, sort of like Nirvana, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, I'm, I'm <laughs> oh, back. I'm, we went to high know, school at the same time. You know what I mean? Like I'm back, yes. I'm back in, in, I'm, you know, um, when I'm lifting weights, it's a little bit more. So, uh, on the way to the gym, since we moved here to Italy, um, when I walk to the gym, I listen to, um, Italian verbs because I'm learning Italian and I, you know, I, I don't feel weird because I got earbuds in my ears and I'm talking out loud saying the verbs. So there's a scoring process that I do that I look forward to that is completely separate from the actual exercise, but it's my time to do those things. Um, and even something silly like the laundry, like I enjoy listening to podcasts when I'm fo- folding laundry. You know what I mean? So, so you, you're so- naturally doing something I call temptation bundling, which is one way to make things fun. So you can make things fun by choosing different activities, right? Like you can be like, I do yoga class or I do Zumba or, um, you know, I eat these healthy foods because I love them. So you can choose how you do it. Or you can actually combine something that otherwise would feel like a chore with something that's a pleasure and that changes the experience. And that's temptation bundling. It's something that I do and have studied. It's like, you know, only letting yourself binge watch your favorite TV show at the gym is a temptation bundle or pick up your favorite treat on the way to the library to hit the books. That's a temptation bundle. And it sounds like with your playlists and your verbs and your your podcasts while folding laundry you are temptation bundling. And that's a way to make it more fun to pursue your goals. You link them with something enjoyable, even if they themselves are being pursued through the same path that feels a little bit less fun. That's right. Um, there is a, a gentleman, I can't remember his name right now. You'll, I think you'll know it, who wrote a book on habits. Um, and one of the things he talked about in the book is about having an alter ego. And... Uh, you know, like if you are in the gym, you know, it's your Superman moments. You know, if you are in business, there may be some Titan of industry that you, you know, that you think about. Have you ever done any research or come across anything like that where, you know, you sort of like any, and he goes as far as to say, like, um, you know, if you really need it, put some, you know, if, if you're going for the Clark Kent thing, put some glasses on, um, to really, you know, to, to really lock it in for change. Like he's, he's all in on this. That's do, you, interesting. do you know so, anything? So I'm not sure who that is. There's a lot of popular books about habit by journalists, some mm-hmm. who base their work in research, some who don't. Um, I don't know of any research that supports that particular strategy, but that doesn't mean it isn't something worth trying. If it works for you, who cares if there's research behind it? Yeah, right. I, I don't know of evidence that says that's going to work consistently. Okay. Um, I want to talk about COVID. Um, we have uh, we have a situation right now, as you well know, where people are having issues wearing their mask. What would you do to get people to wear their mask and or get vaccinated? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of time thinking about this over... Oh, I'm like, oh my God, I have... I've had a lot of conversations like this over the last year and a half. And I have to say, um, I think I can be more helpful with vaccination than with mask wearing, though I'll do my best on both. Um, 
vaccination, I've actually, I sort of threw my whole research team a curveball. We pivoted in March of 2020 from studying some other topics to say we're going to put all of our time and energy into developing the most effective messaging around encouraging vaccination. So we sort of saw coming down the pipe um, the minute that this whole pandemic started since we'd studied vaccination before, we knew not everybody does it, even when there's a safe and effective vaccine and that communication can matter a lot in terms of take-up. So we actually ran experiments with Walmart pharmacies and Penn Medicine and Geisinger Health, a couple large regional health systems. In the fall of 2020, before there was a vaccine available, uh, we tested dozens of ideas submitted by... uh, team scientists who I work with. I have a team of about 150 behavioral scientists all around the world with different backgrounds. We said, send us your best ideas on messaging that would be effective for nudging COVID-19 vaccinations when they're available. And we're going to test it with flu vaccines uh, to see if it has potential. So the message needs to be basically work in either setting. We, We tested dozens of different ideas ranging from texting people and encouraging them to go to the pharmacy to get a vaccine and telling them, look, uh, numbers are up. People are getting vaccinated more than ever before. Or we invited people who had a doctor's visit coming up to dedicate a shot they were about to get to a loved one. Or we told them, you know, do this for all the people in your community you care about. So do it for others, not for yourself. Uh, We tested jokes. We, We thought maybe it'd be Maybe we can make this lighthearted. We'll tell you a joke about the flu. Have you heard the one about the flu? Don't spread it around. Uh, So we tested all sorts of different communication strategies. And interestingly, one rose to the top across all our tests. And that was really simply telling people we'd reserved a vaccine for them, that there was a vaccine waiting for them. And we think that ended up performing so well. And by the way, I should also say just reminding people had a pretty big impact. Uh, but but our best messages lifted vaccination by about 10%. And by the way, this was then subsequently tested by one of our collaborators on COVID-19 vaccinations in January and February. They rolled out our best basically performing type of message and saw it work there too, about the same impact. We think it matters because it makes you feel like it belongs to you already, this vaccine. And nobody wants to give something up that belongs to them. There's research on something called the endowment effect showing we overvalue our possessions and we really don't want to give them up uh, relative to other things out in the world that we could obtain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And another reason is that it suggests it's recommended by either your pharmacist or your doctor. Why would they reserve it for you if they weren't recommending it? Also, it seems like it's going to be hassle-free, right? This thing's set aside. So all of those reasons are probably contributing, though we we can't be sure because the the thing we know for sure is in each site in urban and rural medical uh, settings where your doctor is going to offer you a vaccine and you're coming in in three days and you get this message, it increases take up. And in Walmart pharmacies where your pharmacist sends you this message and you have to you know, get in your car or drive to the pharmacy and ask for the vaccine, it increases take up better than anything else we tested. So that got ruled out uh, in part because of it. I think it'll be helpful with booster shots as well to use that communication strategy. But that is not going to solve sort of anti-vaxxer sentiment, right? It doesn't, it's not that it's um, completely convincing someone who is strongly opposed. It's rather a slight twist on the way we've been communicating about this already that seems to be able to lift 
vaccination intentions because subtle things, subtle details matter in our assessment of whether or not this is recommended or assessment of whether it's going to be easy um, and our valuation of what's being offered to us. So, So that's my best answer there. Although there's also at this point, I think a lot to be done in terms of sort of the door-to-door, face-to-face, motivational interviewing. And I am a big fan of mandates because uh, one, they work really well. They, you know, change the calculus so much that people make decisions that are uh, good for the community. Uh, But they're not, I don't think they're too coercive in a case like this because of the lives that are on the line. And you can choose not to do it. You can get religious exemptions in some cases, or you can move to another new job. And the job market's really good right now. Uh, but I'm a big fan of mandates. They're they're doing more good than anything else that we're seeing. Okay, so, so that's vaccination. <laughs> well, so, no, no, no. It's, I, it, it, listen, this is a uh, this is an issue right now. This is a worldwide issue, and it's a, as you well know, this is a. Um, this is a, a lion's den uh, conversation because it goes in so many different directions and there's so many. So it's interesting because what I'm seeing is, and we, we don't need to get into a whole COVID thing, but, but from a behavioral standpoint, it is interesting to me when I see people who are vaccinated and who are rallying against the mandates of vaccination. And they're saying, Hey, look, like I did it, but I don't want you telling me what to do. How would you, you know, if you were tasked with something like that to change either an anti-vaxxer's mind or somebody who says, just don't tell me what to do. Is there anything that can facilitate a change for somebody that falls into camps like that? Or, 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 or does, does the the subject have to be somewhat willing? I think you can change minds even when they're pretty hard line. I mean, it always depends on how hard line, right? How how strong, how strongly held are these views? But I certainly think there are people right now who haven't gotten vaccinated in the United States who could potentially be convinced to get vaccinated. I think survey data from before times when I was first working on this back in fall 2020, suggested that maybe 10% of the population was hardline anti-vaxxer. And we are not anywhere close to 90% vaccinated. Of course, there's kids who aren't eligible yet and so on. Also, you can see it if you look at age groups, right? There's not such a huge difference in anti-vax sentiment across age spectrums. But if you look at the oldest and most vulnerable, they're far more vaccinated than other age groups. So that means there's a cost-benefit analysis going on here to some degree, right? The fact that like 18-year-olds are vaccinated at a lower rate, they're thinking it's part of it is they're not thinking they're as at risk. And that means you could convince them they're not necessarily completely against it. Um, the the best conversations about this are conversations that are non-judgmental, where you actually are asking people, there's a strategy called motivational interviewing, that that seems to be effective where you're really asking people to dialogue with you about what are, what's their thought process? Why are they hesitant? How can I answer your questions? But tell you tell me more about your line of thinking as opposed to I'm going to jam my information down your throat. So I do think it's really important not to be in sort of sales mode when you're having a conversation mm. with somebody, but rather really listen. What are they really worried about? And do you have any ability to alleviate that? But make sure it's a dialogue and it's a two-way street. And and I think that will help a lot. Is this area 
super interesting for you in terms of, you know, you, you, you happen to be in the line of work that makes change happen. And we happen to be in the midst of a pandemic, you know, the, the, was there, was there a part of you that, you know, the, 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 the professor part of you, you know, looking at this as one big, you know, uh, experiments and watching, watching how this is going down. And, and, uh, if yes, you know, um, what have you learned just personally looking around and seeing who's wearing the mask, who's not wearing the mask and how people are, what the conversations look like, like this must be really interesting for you. Yeah. Interesting is a word that doesn't have enough of a negative connotation, (laughs) but, um, I certainly feel like we've learned a lot. I have felt personally that I I needed to help with what was going on. And there were a lot of nights when I stayed up really late working on projects because I hoped there was some good that could be done. And it was yeah. exhausting. Just, you know, I wish there had been a more organized, centralized um, approach to the behavioral science that needed to be done. And instead, it felt like just a ragtag group who realized we needed to raise our hands and help and chip in. And I hope before the next pandemic, there's more preparation, not only in thinking about how can we make vaccines and scale up delivery, but also understanding the behavioral science we need to know in order to get a response right. Uh, that that seems to be left out of the equation and planning for a pandemic, and it shouldn't have been. And it shouldn't have come down to you know, just some random people who sort of jumped into the, from the university side to do our best to help. Um, Okay, in terms of what I've learned, other than that I was frustrated by that, one of the most interesting things I've learned is not actually about mask wearing and vaccination, though I think we learned a lot from the studies we did there too. But I've been really fascinated by the uh, experience we all had when we rapidly transitioned from one way of life to another. And I, you know, whether you were pro mask wearing or not, right, huge numbers of Americans, regardless of your your views on all of this, your office went remote, you know, your life changed, your kids' school shut down, your life changed. We all faced new challenges that we weren't expecting and had to learn to live and work in different ways. And to me, one of the things that's been most fascinating is understanding, you know, um, what did we learn in that pivot? Uh, that could make work and life better after the pandemic. And I've been worrying a bit about, you know, to what extent will people, when it does feel safe to be fully reopened, to what extent will they just fall right back into what was what life was like before? And to what extent will lessons from this period really be sustained? And will people take the opportunity at that fresh start to reflect on what was working better? And, and it does seem like a lot of organizations... Uh, you know, have plans to operate differently. I I had a conversation with my colleague, Adam Grant, and he was telling me that he was desperately trying to convince a, a number of Silicon Valley CEOs to experiment with remote work. He really thought it would be more productive for a lot of people, especially, you know, long commutes in Silicon Valley. And no one was willing to do it pre-pandemic. They all said like, it's way too risky. There's no way. And a, a number of those CEOs have since said they'll never come back to the office. And I think it's really interesting. We're seeing like, we have this period of forced experimentation, which is so atypical. Uh, and and sort of what we're learning from it, how the world will reshape itself. That's probably what I find most interesting without a negative connotation about this whole experience. 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the world has definitely changed. There's no question. You um, tell me what uh, behavior change for good initiative is. Yeah, so this is an initiative that I co-founded with Angela Duckworth, who's a brilliant psychologist and author of the best-selling book Grit. Um, she works with me at University of Pennsylvania, and about five years ago, she and I were already both very enthusiastically trying to figure out what are the keys to lasting behavior change. That was what we were most most interested in. But we decided to sort of launch a, a larger scale effort to to motivate more research and more interdisciplinary scholarship on this topic. And actually, it was spurred by a, a competition. The MacArthur Foundation put out a call for a $100 million uh, grant proposal on something that would make a major impact on a social problem. And we thought, you know, if we could actually figure out how to change behavior in durable ways, and we could crack the code on that through a massive interdisciplinary effort and collaboration, it could have this huge impact on so many social problems from climate change to, uh, you know, obesity and, you know, smoking and uh, educational outcomes, which is not to say there aren't structural inequalities that are really important to solve for. But if we could understand individual change as well, the combination of those uh, kinds of tools could be really powerful. So we launched this effort, and that's what led us. We we did not win $100 million, I should say. we I think we made it pretty far in the competition, like to the round of, I don't know, like the quarterfinals or something, the round of 200, and then we didn't make it to the round of eight. Uh, but there were thousands of competitors. So we felt okay about that. But once we'd started the effort, we were like, wait a minute, this is a great idea. We should keep going. <laughs> we'd beaten out, I think, 45 other teams at our university. We Our university's one submission. We... Uh, we're able to convince the university to give us some seed funding. And what, what it is now is an, uh, accumulation, we've sort of accumulated a team of scientists and they all worked on the vaccine project I mentioned. There's about 150 economists, psychologists, sociologists, lawyers, doctors, um, computer scientists, neuroscientists who we've, are all interested in behavior change. They're all part of this big network we've created. And we work on massive projects together with organizations where we can measure uh, at scale whether or not we're creating change. And we run tournaments, basically. We we get collect lots of different ideas from different scientists about what might work to, say, motivate more exercise among gym members or encourage vaccination. And we test them all out all at the same time, which in these massive experiments we call the mega studies. And then we publish and re release the findings and say like, these are the best practices and this is what works the best. So it's been a really fun journey. And we do other things too, like big conferences and Freakonomics sometimes shows up because Stephen Dubner and Angela Duckworth are good friends and they have a uh, they have a podcast together. And they'll so Stephen will come show up at our conferences and cover them. And we do book events and lecture series of various kinds. But it's like a community and a science project all in one. I actually love that. I mean, you're in a world right now that, uh, you know, not that long ago, people would say, you know, um, these are kind of nerdy people, but they have, um, they've become sort of rock stars. I mean, certainly Adam Grant is, um, Stephen Dubner is, uh, Angela Duckworth. Is. Like, it's kind of interesting um, that, you know, there's, there's this rise of celebrity of people that are doing the kind of work that you do. And it's, it's interesting because um, we're, I think we're all as, you know, as human beings, we all 
want to change. You know, one of the one of the things that I found so interesting about what you do is simply in in your title of your book, you know, how to change the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. I mean, who does not want to get where they are from where they are to where they want to be? Um, and you know, the subheadline, which I think is you know, you're using research, science, and an understanding of human nature to help readers elicit positive changes in their life, which by the way, may be one of the best titles and subtitles of any book I've ever read. I've ever read. Oh. That's really, really well done. Thank um, you. You're Tell welcome. my editor what, you said that. <laughs> I, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it's, it just, you know, um, there's a, um, there's a test. You'll, you'll love this. Um, there's a test that, um, somebody told me once and you should be able to add the word I want to the book title. And if you can add the word, I want, I want the four hour work week. I want to get from where I am to where I want to be. And you certainly passed that test. So, you know, I love that. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. You are so welcome. Okay. So as we sort of wrap up here, I want to, um, I like, you know, before I'm going to tell everybody to go out and buy your book, I want people to sort of like know you a little bit better. So I'm going to, I'm going to take you on a little journey here and I'm going to ask you really, really weird questions. Um, just roll okay. with it. It'll, it'll be fun. What is on your nightstand? Right now, the book on my nightstand is Nudge, Not the, the book. final. Oh, oh what's just on, like what's, what's on it. Oh, there's a, yeah. there, like physically, there is a yeah. um, coaster and uh-huh. a, you know, a water bottle that's reusable. Uh-huh. And there are books and a nook and a pen and a notepad. Perfect. What do people often get wrong about you? Uh, I think most people do not expect me to be as tenacious as I am because I'm fairly small and female and maybe they underestimate me. Oh, oh, that's interesting. What are some things that you're currently doing that you don't love and you wish that you could do less of them, of it? Oh my God. First thing Ooh. comes to mind. Administrivia? Is that, a, is that is that a word? That's what I call it. Like just administrative stuff that I, you know, related to running my center and getting the big projects I want to get done done. Just the paperwork. I don't enjoy that at all. What is one rule that you have for yourself that you're never going to break? Only work with people I enjoy. Wow. Do you know, I never heard that before. And the podcast right before you said the exact same thing. It was a gentleman who wrote a book called Chatter. You guys both had the even, exact, exact same answer to that question. Even as a good friend, and he is a person on my to work with list and a member of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative scientific team. Well, you got to let him know that I just <laughs> interviewed him and you guys had the exact same answer. And what's I love, interesting, I love, I love well, listen, what's interesting, what you guys both like each other and you're sort of, you know what I mean? So you're, you're not violating the rule. Wow. No, that's not it. at all. I that love a that. a small world thing. That's funny. What is an unusual or an absurd thing that you love? Making up. Rhymes and songs with my five-year-old. Interesting. What's one goal that you thought when you achieved it, 
you know, my life is going to be amazing. It's like, once I just get this thing, oh man, it's going to be great. And then you got it and you're like, it didn't really give me what I thought it was going to give me. Tenure. Tenure. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. I'm glad to have it. Just doesn't make life perfect. Mm -hmm. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Mm. Oh, that's so hard. Probably Paris. I love cities. I love French food. I love walking in cities. And Paris is so beautiful. I love the architecture and the everything there is to eat and the sights and the sounds and the art. So Paris, probably. Mm. That's why and I, I speak to... a little French. Oh, good. That's why I moved to Florence. <laughs> Same kind of reasons. There you um, go. Are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back, doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you've changed your mind substantially about? You've shifted your position where you used to be like, you know, I used to think this way, but I, I, I just, I changed. I don't think that way any longer. Oh my God, there's so many. Now I just have to figure out what are they. Um, I think I think one thing I've become a little bit, I, I think I was a little bit judgmental about uh, women who were highly educated and left the workforce for parenting reasons. Mm. Uh, probably more judgmental than I even want to admit to myself. And now as a parent, I, I, think, I think it's a more... I think I was too harsh and I should have appreciated the validity of whatever choice is right for each person. So I, I think I no longer will make such harsh judgments. I better appreciate... Mm. I, I'm really glad to be a working parent and I love what I do and I wouldn't give it up for the world, either part of it, <laughs> the parenting or the working, but uh, I completely get the other choice. And um, I think I wasn't appropriately respectful of that before. I love that. Uh, with every new level comes a new devil. What are you currently struggling with? I mean, the biggest thing that I struggle with is there's so many things you can do with the job I have that are fun. I have a podcast that I love that reaches a lot of people. I have a newsletter. I wrote a book. I run a research center. I mentor doctoral students. Um, there's administrative tasks that actually are really important to me, like sitting on the tenure and promotions committee at my university. Um, I care a lot about parenting. There's all these things on a plate and and I have to prune some of them to be able to be effective at the, the ones that I choose. And mm -hmm. I, I find it really hard to pick what to prune. I find that to be the hardest thing. And the, saying no and choosing, you know, even though that that would be great and I want to do it all, I'm going to focus on this subset of these things and really make those excellent. It sort of comes back to what we talked about at the beginning. <laughs> sure. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? I think my friends would say that I have a superpower of um, staying upbeat even when life throws me lemons. Although I have to say, life has not thrown me that many lemons. So there, maybe I should call them like small prunes or something rather than lemons. <laughs> but you know, when when there are setbacks, yeah, uh, on a project, for instance, is what I'm talking about. Not you know, not the really huge setbacks like an 
you know, my house, I lose my home or something. But um, those kinds of setbacks that come up a lot in work and can dissuade other people or lead them to to quit. I am very, very persistent and dogged and I stay positive and get pushed through those. I, I think that's been my, probably the most important feature of my career that um, that my friends would point to. My friends right. are mostly fellow academics. <laughs> Okay, and no, I got it. It's your, it's your, uh, it's your, it's your, um, your peer group. Um, What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? People never ask me about my very first research project ever, uh, and how it helped me fall in love with doing social science. Um, They don't ask me what it was about. Do do I get to tell you now? Of course you do. (laughs) You can't, you can't open that door without closing it. I fell in love with social science research. Uh, as an undergraduate, I had to write a senior thesis. And I was majoring in operations research, minoring in American studies. And I had to do a thesis that combined the two. Yeah. And I came up with this wacky idea. I decided I was going to read a decade of short stories published in The New Yorker and quantitatively analyze the fiction to figure out whether or not authors of fiction write about characters who resemble them and their life stories and to figure out whether or not changes in editors shift the nature of what's published in meaningful ways in terms of the themes and who's published and so on. And it was the most fun project that I have done to date. Um, also the only project I've ever done that landed uh, an article on the cover of a section of the New York Times. Um, it was the first thing I ever published I, I I still think about it all the time. I learned so many interesting things. I got to go visit the New Yorker's offices and interview some of the editors there, as well as reading 500 short stories that were incredible. Um, it was just such a treat. I wish people where, asked me more about that. It helped me fall in love with... Where did that idea come from? Um, okay, so... I had this incredible American studies professor. Her name was Elaine Showalter. She's teaching a class about the American short story at Princeton. And, you know, each of her lectures would open with sort of telling us about the the author. And we'd learn who this person was, and then we'd analyze the story they'd written. And in her final lecture, I remember she's talking about how Fiction is intertwined with the lives of the people and the time and the place. And I thought, that's a really interesting hypothesis and I believe it, but has that ever been tested formally? And I was like, maybe I could test that for my thesis. And that's, you know, that's where it came from. And it was, it was an incredibly fun project. It just like had all the magical things you want in a project. Like, you know, the process of doing the work, like reading the fiction was so fun the pro, you know the place that i was studying was so interesting the people who were related you know getting to go to the new york was like the sparkly magical place where incredible things happen and people's lives are changed um i remember getting to see an original john updike manuscript with like the handwritten comments in the margins that was so cool and then the the findings were so interesting and i would go to dinner with my friends in college and be like guess what uh, you wouldn't believe what fraction of the, you know, there was this giant shift in the number of female authors when this person came in. Or did you know that um, that it's more common for uh, women and minorities to write about people who aren't in their demographic groups than for white men to write about 
you know, characters in their stories that have their lead character be someone who isn't a white man. Like different kinds of people are stepping outside of their skin at different rates. And that's so interesting. And why do you think that is? And it was just, everything about it was intriguing. It, it was like magic. And then it was really fun. The world reacted in this really, you know, I sort of thought I was scratching an intellectual itch and then it got all this media attention. And that was also neat because I was like, other people find this cool. I can I can find out things that other people want to know and want to talk about. This is amazing. You should totally get Dubner to have you on the podcast and deconstruct this whole thing, explaining it. I can, <laughs> I'm telling you, I can completely see a one-hour episode going through this uh, in detail. This is really fascinating because there's so much that goes into the protagonist that an author creates. And why did he choose this one? And what does that have to do with him or her in relation to what that's, this is why it was you the most, see, this is why I thought this was the most fun project I've ever it, done. And I was like, was, wait, I want to do this with my life. Study I, questions that I find interesting professionally. Let's do that. All right. In the last Thank minute, we Thank you for being have, excited. <laughs> I'm really excited. I actually legitimately am. Um, okay. I'll last question. Uh, yeah. I, wh- how long is it? Is it's it like short. a th- Okay, good. Absolutely send it to me. Because I always have this impression that it's going to be... They, have an, they always have an abstract. It's like just right. you know, 250 words. Just read that. We'll send okay, you the perfect. abstract. I'd love, I'd love, love, love. I'll actually, I'll link it up in the show notes because uh, people are going to, because they're going to ask me, trust me. Um, okay. We're going to change it up a little bit. Last question. Um, what one question would you like to ask me? Oh, I only get one. I'm like, I have so many questions. <sighs> Who is your best interview ever and why? Oh, I'm going to say the first thing that comes to mind as I'm going through the mental Rolodex, the first person that comes to mind is a gentleman named Phil Rosenthal. And he created a television show called Everybody Loves Raymond. And he now has a Netflix show called Somebody Feed Phil. And he is a comedy writer in L.A., grew up in New York and he, I don't know. I mean, he's got to be worth a half a billion with, uh, with everything. And he was the most authentic, interesting, funny, real person with such a level of fame, money, et cetera, that I've ever encountered. So it was, he had the goods for an interview because his stories went on for days. I mean, I could, it was like, you know, an old Jewish guy telling me jokes that I could sit there and listen to for like, everything was fascinating. Everything was interesting. (laughs) So I did not, like, it was like a movie that you didn't want to end. I did not want it to end. And he was so genuinely interested in me and my life that we wound up actually becoming friends. And um, he was just kind and interesting and fun and real. There wasn't a pretentious 
bone in his body, who he was to his core, you got. And I know that everybody, I don't care if it was, you know, if he was talking to the president or he was talking to a janitor and he was that guy all the time. And so that would be the answer. But let's let's do one more. I get one more question. Okay. Yeah. Why'd you move to Italy? I turned 55 last month and I moved here last month. Um, I've got a wife uh, and we've married 15 years and I have a seven-year-old daughter, just to give you context. Over the course of, I was in, we were in uh, Hermosa Beach in Los Angeles. And over the course of the last year, I started um, becoming increasingly more unhappy with my surroundings. I'm watching Democrats and Republicans go crazy. I'm watching the Capitol get stormed. I'm watching the city I live in get get burned down from Black Lives Matter. And the, the straw that broke the camel's back was our home backs up to uh, an elementary school in Hermosa. So I can hear when the bell goes off and when they make announcements, it's pretty close. And all of a sudden, one day we're sitting on the deck in the afternoon, my wife and I, and school's in session. And we hear, get on the ground, get on the ground, get under the tables, get under the tables. And we're like, what is going on at the school? So we call the school and we ask them what, what, what's happening. And they said, oh, don't worry. We're just, we're doing a shooter drill. And we're like, what's a shooter drill? I said, well, just in case a gunman comes into the elementary school, we're teaching the kids um, how to get under the table to protect themselves. And we're also going to give them um, a bag that is going to help um, if somebody did get shot, uh, help them to be able to stop the bleeding. And they're treating them, it's like a war bag. And I said, I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like I can't, I can't spend the rest of my life in an environment like that. There's got to be a better place. And um, we did a lot of research and Florence um, was the winner because we can walk everywhere. We live right in the middle of the city. Um, and there is, it's a village feeling here. There's zero crime doesn't exist. Um, we decided to go all in and we have, um, an Italian teacher that comes twice a week. We hired a, uh, a tour guide that comes once a week and every week she takes us out in, in the city and, uh, teaches us, you know, the history. Um, and we just adopted the culture, the art, the slower pace, and um, it's new. It's been a month, and I am a different human being. I am deeply fulfilled, deeply happy, and everybody else is too. So it was a gamble, you know. I grew up in New York, and you know, I, I've never lived in Europe before. I have no idea what you know what it was going to be like. Um, and I cannot. I, I feel like I'm living a fantasy. That's what it feels like here. It's like a fantasy. So long answer, but that's the that's the answer. Interesting, right? Yeah, it's wonderful. And I, I understand where your threshold idea comes from. There you go. That, yeah, you got it. Not another minute, not another day. We're getting out of here.
Mm-hmm. Well, Katie, this was, is it Dr. Katie? Do you go by Dr. Katie? You don't care. I, I prefer Katie. Perfect. <laughs> but yes, Perfect. I am a I am a PhD and you can call me doctor if you want or professor, but I prefer Katie. You got it. Katie, this was awesome. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Final words. This was really fun. Thank you for having me. I feel like I learned a lot. Really enjoyed hearing about your change of late. And thanks for asking different questions. I've done a lot of podcasts yeah, bet, yeah. <laughs> and launching a book. And and this one felt, um, it was particularly fun for me. I really enjoyed it. So thank you for that. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. So we'll we'll link everything up in the uh, the show notes so everybody can get uh, get your book. And thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.